Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 4, Episode 9 for Part 1 of this two-part case. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Following the murder of Michael Gregston and the rape and attempted murder of Valerie Storey, the call was made to James Hanratty to turn himself in. Scotland Yard had dropped Peter Alphon as a suspect, and after questioning Charles Dixie France, police learned that Hanratty had referred to the upstairs back seat of a London bus as being a good place to dispose of unwanted goods. This was the exact place the murder weapon had been found. Two days after he turned 25, on October 6, 1961, James Hanratty took his friend Charles Dixie France's advice and called Scotland Yard from a phone box in London, Soho. Superintendent Acott asked about his whereabouts on the night of the murder of Michael Gregston. Hanratty confidently told him that he had nothing to do with it, and on the day it took place, a Tuesday, He had got a train to Liverpool where he stayed with three friends until that Friday when he returned to London to visit Dixie and his family. 
The night of the murder, he was adamant that he was over 200 miles away in Liverpool. He had friends and fences there. And by friends, he meant associates in crime. And by fences, he meant people who helped him shift stolen goods. Because these people had criminal records, he was not sure they would convince police of his whereabouts. Hanratty was unable to remember the name of the guesthouse he had stayed in or the landlady. It was six weeks earlier, but he was sure that's where he was. He said he would try and find someone to vouch for him, but what associate was going to put their hand up and give themselves up to police for nabbing stolen goods? Hanratty wouldn't give up his associates' names and refused to go to the police personally for questioning. He was worried they would at least lock him up for housebreaking if he did. He is quoted as saying on that call, I know I have left my fingerprints at different places and some different things, and the police want me, but I want to tell you that I did not do that A6 murder. Hanratty wasn't going to give anyone up, but he would try and find someone in Liverpool to support his story. He hung up the phone, called his friend Dixie, telling him he was going to find someone in Liverpool to do just that. That evening, Hanratty stole a car, driving to Manchester, and then the following morning got a train to Liverpool. He made another call to Scotland Yard that afternoon saying, This is Jimmy Ryan again, but you will never guess where I'm speaking from. Liverpool. His trip to find an alibi wasn't successful. No one wanted to give themselves up and Hanratty hadn't been able to come up with the lodging where he had stayed either. It was then that James Hanratty made his way to Blackpool, although no one knew this at the time. The Stevonia Fish and Chip restaurant on Central Drive in Blackpool had been serving customers late into the night for over 40 years. Just after 11pm on October 11th, 1961, Detective Constable James Williams and Albert Stillings stopped by the Stevonia for a cup of coffee. A man who sat eating a meal caught their eye. He resembled the man wanted for questioning in the A6 murder. When the constables approached him and asked who he was, Hanratty said his name was Peter Bates. He was arrested, taken to the police station and locked up while Scotland Yard was informed. Detective Superintendent Acott and Detective Sergeant Kenneth Oxford drove to Blackpool through the night and questioned him for the entire day. Hanratty had his fingerprints taken and volunteered to provide forensic samples if that would prove his innocence. As far as forensic evidence against Hanratty, they had none other than his O-type secretor status, but even in 1961 that was no basis for an arrest, let alone a conviction. He was a known car thief, which was a minor aspect of this crime, but they had no evidence that he was known to brandish a gun and no one who knew him was able to recollect a time he had been violent or even got into a physical fight. He had never been charged with any crimes against women 
and it was said although he was a criminal, he wasn't the type to threaten people, and he was courteous to women and younger females. What they did have against him was a long and complex string of circumstances that placed him as their number one suspect. They had Charles Dixie France saying that Hanratty was known to hide things under the back seat of a bus, the dubious assistant manager and known crook Nuds from the Vienna Hotel saying that on the morning before the crime, he had directed Hanratty, or Ryan as he was known, to the 36A bus where the gun would later be found. And then they had Hanratty under the name of Ryan, having stayed in the room at the Vienna where the cartridges matching the gun were found, suggesting that Hanratty had left them by mistake. So when questioning began that morning, the focus was on Hanratty's Liverpool alibi and his movements during the week of the murder. In Hanratty's following two interviews led by ACOT, Sergeant Oxford transcribed what would later be described as a sort of shorthand running note of what was said, written in pencil on false cap paper. In the coming years, the method and accuracy of these notes would come under question. One thing that is clear, and has never been disputed, is that when cautioned, Hanratty said to the officers, I understand, but as I told you, I have got a perfect alibi for the murder. Fire away and ask me any questions you like. I will answer them, and you will see I had nothing to do with the murder. In the days leading up to the night of Tuesday, August 22nd, Hanratty claimed his movements are as follows. He visited Dixie France and his family on two separate occasions in the two days before the murder, both the Sunday and again on the Monday. Carol France, who had been the one to previously dye Hanratty's hair, confirmed the Monday at least, because it coincided with a dental appointment the police were able to verify. Before visiting them on the Monday, the day before the murder, it was confirmed that Hanratty had visited a dry cleaner's in Swiss Cottage to collect his suit. This happened to be the same dry cleaner's that the murder victim Michaels, a strange wife and her brother-in-law, believed they saw the murderer ten days later, the person matching the second sketch that had yet to be released to the public. Hanratty left the Francis home that Monday around 7pm, telling them he was going to Liverpool to visit his aunt and take her to the dogs. When he left their house, he was wearing a striped Hepworth suit, including a jacket. According to him, he decided to go to Liverpool the following morning instead, and that's how he came to arrive at the Vienna. During the investigation into his alibi, police would find that Hanratty's aunt did live in Liverpool, but had not seen him for years and was not expecting a visit. He agreed that he was wearing his pinstripe Hepworth suit at the time of the murder, and the assistant manager of the Vienna's account of him wearing it was correct. But a few weeks after that, he claimed he had damaged the jacket during a burglary in Stanmore. He had torn it getting in through a window and thrown it away. Police looked into Stanmore break-ins and claimed that Hanratty was lying, he swore he was telling the truth. He remembered that the electricity was off and that he found a green candle to use as a light. 
He agreed that the night before the murder, the Monday night, he had arrived at the Vienna just before midnight, leaving the following morning about 9am, ending up at Paddington Station by accident before going to Euston to get a train to Liverpool. That day, the day of the murder, he had been nowhere near Slough or Dorney Reach where the couple were approached. He had caught up with three former prison inmates in Liverpool that he knew, although he still wasn't prepared to give up their names. Anratty admitted that shortly after leaving prison that March, he had made inquiries with a man he knew in Ealing about obtaining a gun. In his words, a shooter to do some stick-ups. He agreed that he wanted to be known as a stick-up man, and he could get one if he wished, but he hadn't actually gone through with it and never got the gun. When detectives told him about the cartridges found in the room at the Vienna, they did note that for a man who claimed to know little about guns, his questioning of what size the bullets were seemed strange. Anratty's solicitor, Mr. Kleinman, notified the police in writing the details of his client's alibi. Apparently there was someone after all who might back up Hanratty's story. Upon arriving in Liverpool on the day of the murder, Hanratty had visited a sweet shop on Scotland Road where he had asked for directions to Colton or Tolbert Road. He had stayed in Liverpool for three nights before returning to London. Hanratty had now provided information on a trip to the cinema as well as a visit to New Brighton on the Wirral. The police didn't doubt that Hanratty had been in Liverpool that week. What they were doubting was when he went. They believed that he fled there after the murder. There was proof of a telegram he had sent to Dixie from a telephone hall opposite the Liverpool main railway station on the Thursday evening saying, Having a nice time. Be home early Friday morning for business. Yours sincerely, Jim. The sender, a Mr. P. Ryan. Hanratty could have arrived in Liverpool that Thursday, two days after the murder, and sent that telegram straight after he arrived at the station for all police knew. According to Hanratty's interview, he returned to London the following day on the Friday, where he went back to Dixie Francis, although they believed his next visit was early on the following day. At the end of his first interview, the officers noticed that Hanratty mentioned wanting to go for a kip, and his second interview, which would follow the next day, he was recorded as having said it twice. Later, Hanratty would deny using this word in his everyday language, as well as stating he never said it in his interview. Late that afternoon, James Hanratty was taken to Bedford Police Station and put into an identity parade for the four witnesses who had seen the Morris Minor. The garage attendant from before the murder, the two men who had pulled up beside the Morris, and finally the man who was parked waiting for his friend when he saw the car and its driver pull up in Redbridge where it would later be found. Two of the four men identified Hanratty as being the driver of the car, one of the men who pulled up alongside him and the man who had seen the car pull up and park near the station. The other two witnesses picked out line-up volunteers. Anratty complained that everyone else in the line-up was wearing light-coloured outfits except for him, 
who was wearing dark clothing. The following day, a lineup was then arranged for Valerie's story. The last identity parade that was conducted for her, she had failed to pick out the then top suspect Peter Alphon. Instead, she picked out a volunteer. This time, as she lay paralysed in her Stoke Mandeville hospital bed, a line of men were brought in as she was wheeled up and down the line. Each man was then required to speak so that Valerie might also recognise the voice of both her attacker and her lover's killer. Each was asked to say, Be quiet, will you? I'm thinking. Which was what the man had said to Valerie after she reacted to him shooting Michael Gregston in the back of the head. Valerie's story was determined that this time she would make no mistake and so she asked for her bed to be wheeled up and down once more to each man. And at each man, she requested again that he say the line. She would later say that at first she was startled by the colour of Hanratty's hair, but when she heard him speak, there was no doubt in her mind that it was him, and she named James Hanratty as the man who had raped her and the man who had murdered Michael Gregston. Following the identity parade, James Hanratty was charged with the capital murder of Michael Gregston. The charges of rape and attempted murder of Valerie Storey were held in reserve. Hanratty refused to admit that he was in any way involved with the A6 murder. The Daily Express, Monday October 16, 1961, ran a front-page story of Hanratty's parents Mary and James. They were photographed walking away from the camera, a sad scene, and an article reflecting their sadness that their son, who they knew had many troubles with the law, was now, as they believed, being framed for murder. Later that week, a man rang the front desk of the Daily Mirror. He had called before, almost a month earlier, threatening to harm Valerie Storey. The Mirror staff had phoned the police, and all assumptions were that this caller was probably Peter Alphon. He had strangely continued to insert himself in the case. He wanted the police's attention, and it seemed he wanted police to think he was involved. This is one of the strangest coincidences about Alphon. It was proven true that he had stayed in the same shared room of the same hotel as James Hanratty. He was picked out of a lineup by Micah Dalal as being the man who broke into her home, introducing himself as the A6 killer. Alphon had given a false alibi for the night of the murder, saying he had visited his mother. The police had found this alibi to be false but were confident enough not to investigate his alibi any further.
James Hanratty was committed for trial by the magistrate's court in Amptill, Bedfordshire. While on remand, a prison officer overheard a conversation between two prisoners on a bus en route to their court hearings. Roy Langdale, coincidentally a known police informant, was heard telling the other prisoner that Hanratty had confessed to him in the exercise yard over a series of detailed conversations. The officer reported the conversation to the governor and an investigation was carried out. Langdale confirmed he had become friendly with Hanratty during exercise time. Their conversations eventually turned to the A6 murder and in time, Hanratty had, after first proclaiming his innocence, admitted responsibility. When investigated, no other prisoners could corroborate either the circumstances of the confessions or that they had known of them. Apparently, they had only ever heard Hanratty continue to proclaim he was innocent and that he rarely had contact at all with Roy Langdale. His evidence would be introduced at trial, but there would be discrepancies between Langdale's original statement and the evidence he gave. On January 22, 1962, the trial was opened at Bedfordshire Assizes by Mr Justice Gorman and by its conclusion 21 trial days later, it would be the longest recorded trial in British criminal history. The prosecution led by Mr Graham Swanwick QC called 83 witnesses and Hanratty's defence counsel, Mr Michael Sherrard QC, would put Hanratty himself on the stand along with 14 others. The public queued outside the court each morning, hours early, in order to get seats in the courtroom. Valerie Storey, the prosecution's key witness, was still residing in Stoke Mandeville Hospital where she was being treated for her injuries. She would be placed on a stretcher and transported by ambulance to each day of the trial where she would give evidence in a wheelchair. The changing colour of the attacker's hair and eyes had originally been the difference between the first and second identikit picture issued by police. In the lay-by of the A6, the student who came to Valerie's aid had jotted down her saying that the attacker had large staring eyes and light fairish hair. But when Valerie was first questioned in hospital for the sketch release, she stated that he had dark brown hair and deep-set brown eyes. The subsequent composite sketch looked remarkably like the police's number one suspect, Peter Alphon. Then Valerie changed her description to him having large, icy blue saucer-like eyes, just as Janet Gregston had described to police, a man she had the overpowering feeling about because of that unreleased description. The second sketch matched more closely to the police's new suspect, James Hanratty. At the pre-trial hearing, Valerie had signed a statement confirming that the attacker's hair was medium brown, not dark brown, as her previous statements. And then at trial, she said he definitely had dark brown hair and denied having changed the colour at the hearing. Valerie told the jury that after the attacker had sped off in the Morris Minor, leaving her for dead, She gathered up some stones and tried to make the words blue eyes and brown hair, 
although no plausible explanation was ever given for why she had originally told police his eyes were brown and deep-set. Hanratty having an O blood type was not exactly proof that he was the killer. At that time, 36% of the British population were O-type, including Peter Alphon. So with no fingerprints or other forensic evidence to tie Hanratty to the murder, the prosecution's main arguments were the identification parade. Valerie had picked him out during her bedside lineup. She had questioned Hanratty's hair, but after hearing his voice she had made a positive identification. They also had the identifications from the two men who had separately seen him in the Morris, but neither of these men's companions had identified Hanratty. Most of Valerie Story's original account had not been made public until the trial. One of the things brought forward was on the night of the attack, when the gunman had made Michael drive all around the outskirts of London. They were in the Harrow area when the gunman said, quote, Be careful. Round the corner there's some roadworks. Valerie had noticed that there were no signs for roadworks, but as they went around the corner the gunman had been right, and there was roadworks there. At that moment he said, quote, I don't know this area. Presented to the jury was the fact that James Hanratty's family lived in Kingsbury, just a couple of miles away. It was likely that Hanratty knew the area. The Hepworth suit was also brought up. Hanratty had purchased the suit and picked it up four days before the murder. He had admitted to wearing it all the next week and was adamant that it wasn't until the following month that he had damaged the jacket and thrown it away. The prosecution believed that Hanratty had thrown the jacket away following the murder as it was entirely plausible, they believed, that the jacket may have been the only blood-stained item. Interestingly though, Hanratty's waistcoat and trousers were seized and at the time no bloodstains were found on either. They did however get handed into evidence with their labels cut out, hiding any distinguishing features of where the suit was from. When interviewed by Scotland Yard, Hanratty had told them that it was during a house burglary in Stanmore that he had damaged the jacket and thrown it away. They had told him he was lying and that no houses had been broken into there at the time, and certainly none where the power had been out and a green candle had been found. Before the trial ended, police were forced to admit that they had made a mistake. There had been a housebreaking in Stanmore, and everything Hanratty had described was true, but it still didn't prove that he had been wearing the jacket at the time. One source does state, however, that the defence tracked down the homeowner, who admitted that a suit jacket of his was stolen during the robbery, which the defence argued that Hanratty could have stolen that night after ruining his on the way out. the prosecution presented the findings of both the gun and the cartridges. Assuming that Hanratty had in fact been the one to send the telegram to Dixie at 8.40pm on August 24th, they scrutinised the timeline. The telegram coincided within a few hours of the bus cleaner Edwin Cook finding the gun under the seat. They believed it was plausible that Hanratty had hidden the gun on the morning route of the bus 
matching the shift of the female conductress having seen the lone man she didn't recognize go to the top deck. As for the cartridges, there was never a satisfactory explanation given for how the spent cartridges proven to be from the murder weapon came to be at the Vienna Hotel. If the staff and guest book were right, Hanratty had only stayed there before the murder. And the same could be said for Alphon. It has also never been stated anywhere that the cartridges had to have been used at the murder. What if they were picked up and kept from a previous time the gun was used? and accidentally left in room 24. The housekeeper from the Vienna testified. She said that the morning following the murder, a night after Hanratty had slept in the room, and Alphon having stayed before that, that when she changed the bed linen, she moved the chair to do so. She had not seen the cartridges then, but was certain she would have if they were there before. It is believed that between this day and the day the cartridges were found, another man might have stayed in the room, and he was totally cleared by police. Rumours were already circulating from Hanratty's camp that the cartridges might have been planted, and there is no public record as to the exact number of bullets found under the bus seat compared to the number correctly bagged as evidence. Hanratty's friend, whom he stayed with on occasion in London, Louise Anderson, was also called as a crown witness. Louise was the antique store owner who coincidentally was also an acquaintance of Janet Gregston's brother-in-law. What this meant was James Hanratty had a strangely coincidental link to the murder victim that could not be explained. At trial, Louise revealed that she had, on occasion, been frightened of Hanratty but this conflicted with her statement given at a pre-trial hearing when she had said they'd got along well. Prison informant Roy Langdale took the stand and recounted the conversations he said he had with Hanratty while they were both on remand. He was challenged by the defence as there were statements from other inmates who believed they had never seen Langdale and Hanratty speak. Later, Roy Langdale went on trial himself convicted of forgery. Instead of a prison sentence, which would have been normal for his crime, Langdale received three years probation, which led to questions over whether he was paid off for his information against Hanratty. Hanratty's alibi was scrutinised by the prosecution. His account of travelling to Liverpool and asking directions in the sweet shop was timed to see if he could still have returned south in order to commit the crime. The defence team managed to track down a shop assistant from the sweet shop who confirmed seeing Hanratty, but couldn't say for sure if it was the day of the murder or the day before the 21st. This leans strongly towards Hanratty being in Liverpool the day of the murder after all. Then, with no one to solidify his alibi, Hanratty did something that would shock even his own defence counsel. The day before he was due to take the witness stand, James Hanratty informed his lawyers that he had lied about his alibi. Most of what he had said before was true. He had gone to Liverpool 
but on the actual night of the crime, he was now saying he was in the Welsh seaside town of Rhyl. So on the twelfth day of the trial, this twist in the case would shock the court but excite the press as Mr. Sherrard QC would open the defence's case with the news. Anratty stated that he had been caught off guard when on the phone to Scotland Yard. He panicked they were going to pin it on him and he lied. He still claimed that he had caught the train to Liverpool on the morning of the 22nd before the murder, but was now saying that later that same day, before the crime had taken place, and after being unable to find the person he was looking for to sell on the stolen goods, he decided to go to the Welsh seaside town of Rill instead, and he was in Rill, not Liverpool, when the entire crime took place. The following is what was presented in court as James Hanratty's final account of his whereabouts on the 22nd and 23rd of August 1961. On August 22nd, having left the Vienna Hotel at about 9.30am, he walked to Paddington Station by mistake. He then took a taxi to Euston Station and travelled by train to Lime Street Station, Liverpool, arriving at about 4.30pm. His intention was to meet a man whom he had met in prison, but whom he had not seen for three to four years, in order to dispose of a stolen ring worth £350. The man, Mr Aspinall, was apparently in the grocery or green grocery business, and James Hanratty believed that he lived in Colton, Tolton or Tolbert Road. He had a wash at the station and then left his suitcase in the left luggage office with a man whose hand was deformed or withered. Having been directed by a woman, he got on a bus at or near the station, but then got off it when asked to pay the fare because the conductor did not know the place he was looking for. He got off in Scotland Road, spoke to two or three people, and walked into a sweet shop asking for directions. He was told to go back into town because he had come too far. He then walked back to Lime Street, but could not find the road. He had a meal, and then came upon a man standing on the steps of a billiard hall, to whom he had tried to sell a watch, but was told he could not go upstairs, because the premises were licensed. He abandoned his search for Mr Aspinall. It was then that Hanratty made the decision to leave Liverpool for real, where he had previously met a man named John, who he had thought would be his best chance at selling the jewellery. Hanratty informed the court that he knew John from the fairground at Rill, where a month prior he had asked John for a job on the bumper cars. He had nowhere to stay, and John had given him a bed and lent him a pair of shoes. Hanratty was supposed to pay John back after starting work with him, but Hanratty disappeared, and they hadn't spoken since. So from Liverpool, Hanratty said he boarded a bus to Rill around 7.30pm, coinciding with the time Valerie and Michael were at the Old Station Inn in Taplow. He arrived shortly before dusk, as the Morris Miner entered the cornfield 200 miles away. Hanratty couldn't remember the name of the guesthouse he had stayed in in Rill, but he recalled it as being near the station and the landlady was middle-aged with grey hair. He also remembered a coat stand in the hallway and an aspidistra plant. In the attic was a green bath. 
The following morning, as Valerie's story was found semi-conscious in the lay-by of the A6 and the hunt had begun for the attacker, Anratti said he left the guest house and spent the day looking for John without any luck. One of the reasons John may have been hard for Hanratty to track down was that his real name was in fact Terry Evans. He spent one more night in the same guest house before boarding a bus the following morning back to Liverpool, having not sold off the goods. At this point, the second day into the hunt for the killer, and the day the gun would be found on the bus, Hanratty said he went to the cinema in Liverpool to see the guns of Navarone, and attempted to see a local boxing match. At 8.40pm he sent the telegram to Dixie from the phone hall near the train station, before boarding a train back to London. He also added that he had recalled two men he had seen on the train from Euston, London to Liverpool the day of the murder, one of which had gold cufflinks with the initial E engraved. Hanratty's reasoning for making up the Liverpool alibi was that seeing as he never saw anyone he knew in real, he was sure there would be no one to vouch for him and no way to confirm his alibi. His instinct when speaking to the police on the phone was that surely one of his friends or fences from Liverpool would have helped him out. That was the reason he had travelled to Liverpool after he first phoned Scotland Yard telling Superintendent Acott, as he was sure someone would give him his alibi. It was only when he got there he found that no one would agree to lie for him. He roamed around not sure what he was going to do and that's when he decided to go to Blackpool, where he was later arrested. Anratty's barrister would say of the change in alibi, It is often said that Hanratty changed his alibi from Liverpool to Rill, and that is really not quite right. The substance of the Liverpool alibi was always maintained. The defence team presented the jury with the differences between James Hanratty and the murderer. There was barely a comment that the killer made during the hours in the car with Valerie and Michael that matched Hanratty's life. He was a confident driver, was not on the run, and to anyone's knowledge he had never been violent, let alone committed any sexually motivated crimes. It would seem that Hanratty had no motive whatsoever for the crimes. The only element that matched his M.O. was the car stealing. But with Valerie and two other witnesses having picked him from the lineup, plus the fact that he had blatantly lied about his alibi, Hanratty's outcome did not look good. Hanratty spent four hours in the witness box, and after being cross-examined, he had been on the stand for ten hours. He denied being the person who attacked Michael Gregston and Valerie Storey, or the man seen driving the Morris Minor. He denied that he had made up the new real alibi, or that he had confessed to anyone in Brixton Prison that he was the killer. He agreed that he dyed his hair dark and that he tried to remove the dye from his hair after becoming aware that he was a suspect in the crime, for which they were looking for a man with dark hair. Hanratty said, quote, the man who committed this crime was a maniac, a savage. I am not a maniac of any kind. I am decent. I try to live a respectable life. 
except for my housebreaking. And at another point, Hanratty was quoted as saying, In this case, I have three friends. They are my counsel and my family. The rest of the world are against me. Hanratty claimed that the police, while questioning him, had not allowed him to read and sign his own statement. And Hanratty argued that some of the things they claimed he had said, he had not. When the prosecutor, Mr Graham Swanwick QC, questioned Hanratty on whether he had tried to buy a gun prior to the attack and whether he had done so, Hanratty said he had never had a gun and if he wanted one, he could easily go to Soho and buy one for 10 or £12, but he never did, it was just talk. The man the prosecution were alleging he had bought a gun off was someone Hanratty agreed he knew and they'd had a conversation about the fact the jury business was getting old. Hanratty had mentioned that he would, quote, get a shooter and go into cash. Swanwick suggested that Hanratty had used this new toy, as he put it, to hold up the couple. But Hanratty argued, quote, if I did, why did I go to a car parked in a cornfield? I would be looking for a bank or a shop or somewhere where there was some cash. When questioned about Langdale, the prison informant, Hanratty said, quote, I will put it straight to you as I put it to my counsel. Langdale has walked with me on two or three occasions. Langdale came to me of his own free will and he asked me facts about the case which hundreds of other people have also asked me. I remember quite plainly him asking me what I was in for or to that effect. I told him quite plainly that I was a suspect in the A6. This is the only dealing I have ever had with that man. Later Hanratty said that every word that man has put to the court is a complete pack of lies. Swanwick acknowledged Hanratty's new alibi and asked if it was true that he wished to locate these new people from Rill and the train. The man John from the fairground, the woman from the mysterious hostel, the two men on the train from Euston, one with gold cufflinks. Did Hanratty really think these people were going to show up now? Or as Swanwick posed, would nothing happen because the new alibi was nothing but an invention? Hanratty said, quote, I put it to you quite frankly, Mr. Swanwick, that your suggestions are wrong in every way, and I only hope that this next week that I will be able to prove to you that your suggestions are outrageous. In time for trial, they were able to find the landlady of a bed and breakfast fitting the description, who believed she remembered Hanratty staying there some time between August 19th and the 26th. Also, the investigators for the defence had managed to track down John, the man Hanratty was looking for at the funfair. John's real name was Terry Evans, but he agreed that he was also known as John to some. Evans confirmed he hadn't seen Hanratty at the time, but assisted the investigators in tracking down the guest house. Evans took the stand and denied that he would be someone to get rid of stolen goods. He agreed that he had met Hanratty as he had earlier testified, and admitted that he would have been able to introduce Hanratty to fences. Mrs Grace Jones believed that Hanratty had stayed at her guest house, but was unsure about the dates as her hotel records were shown to be improperly kept. When pushed on her bad record-keeping, 
it became obvious that the owner may not have recorded the stay in a room that probably shouldn't have been rented out. It was a small attic room, essentially a bathroom with a bed in it, not a real room that should have been let out to paying guests. And that room had a green bath in it, as James Hanratty mentioned. Following lunch, the judge called her back to the witness box. He asked if she had spoken with any other witnesses during the break. After all, he had warned her previously not to speak with anyone. Mrs. Jones said yes. She had spoken to Terry Evans, but they had only discussed going back to the hotel for lunch. When the prosecution came to cross-examine Mrs. Jones, the judge informed her that he had also called the man she spoke with, who told him that they had in fact discussed whether she had recognised Hanratty. Mrs. Jones was presented as an unreliable witness. She had kept incorrect logbooks, was unsure of dates, and had now lied to the court. None of this helped Hanratty. When it came time for Mr Justice Gorman's summing up of the case, he reviewed the evidence presented by Detective Superintendent Acott and reminded the jury of all the criticisms of that evidence by the defence. Taking up a total of 10 hours spread over the last three days of the trial, he reminded the 11 men of the jury that, quote, he does not have to prove his alibi. The failure or otherwise of the alibi does not make him guilty. The question of credibility is essentially and entirely a matter for you. You saw the battle go on, witness and counsel, and you have to say, how stands the credibility of Superintendent Acott now that the dust of battle has blown away and we can see things perhaps in a clearer perspective? Because that is how you have to view it. He all but directly stated that he did not believe the case against Hanratty was strong enough. Just prior to the jury exiting for deliberations, they requested a transcript of the proceedings. Although in current times a 20-plus day trial is the norm, at the time, it is important to note again that this was the longest murder trial in Britain, so the amount of evidence and witnesses would have been unprecedented for any jury. But because the transcript would include things discussed not in the presence of the jury, this request was denied though the judge did let them have a list of witnesses. They were also allowed to have the exhibits, and so as the jury sat to deliberate, they were surrounded by the 136 pieces of evidence, including the revolver. After six and a half hours, the jury made a request to the judge via a letter. May we have a further statement from you regarding the definition of reasonable doubt? Basically, the judge, the court and Hanratty all knew that by the jury asking what does reasonable doubt even mean, meant that Hanratty's verdict and life lay in the hands of 11 men who needed clarification of the term. In such a complex case, it was obviously a concern to the judge. They also had a request, and because of this, 
the judge had to reassemble the court again without the jury, and a nervous Hanratty was brought up after his counsellor told him what was happening. As was customary, Hanratty needed to be present to hear any requests of the jury, and this request, after nearly seven hours of waiting to hear his fate, was read to the court for all counsel to approve. The judge read the jury's request aloud. Is it possible for us to have some tea, please? There were no objections. At 9.10pm, after nine and a half hours of deliberating, the jury had reached their verdict. They were unanimous. James Hanratty was guilty of the murder of Michael Gregston. No one in the court would need to wonder what the sentence would be. Wearing the black cap, Justice Gorman asked Hanratty if he had anything to say. Hanratty replied, quote, I am innocent, my lord, and I will appeal. That is all I have to say at this stage. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. 
With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. It was announced that James Hanratty would be hanged at Bedford Prison at 8am on March 7, 1962. That night, Hanratty's defence put out a public appeal for a man who might have been in Hanratty's carriage on the train from Euston to London on the day of the murder, revealing he was wearing gold cufflinks engraved with the letter E. An appeal was immediately launched, which postponed the date of the execution. The completion of the trial meant that photos of Hanratty could finally be circulated in the hope of finding more witnesses. Prior to this, it was not allowed. A man named Michael DeCosta contacted the defence. He explained that he believed he had been on the same train from Euston. He was not the man with the cufflinks, and he was not in the same compartment. DeCosta was an actor, and because of that he recognised dyed hair, especially as it was so uncommon to see a man with it. The defence found the police had withheld information from three other witnesses before the end of the trial. A week before the trial ended, a man called to say he had seen a photo of the landlady from Real in the Sunday Times. Christopher Larman was a local taxi driver. After seeing the photo of Mrs Jones, he realised he had very likely seen Hanratty at that time in Real too. Three women from Real, Mrs Margaret Walker, Mrs Ivy Vincent and Mrs Betty Davis. All three said that on the evening of August 22nd, just as it was getting dark, which matches Hanratty's new testimony that he arrived in Real from Liverpool that night just before dark, he knocked on each of their doors looking for a place to stay. The defence team took statements from everyone in order to present at the appeal. After the trial had ended, Terry Evans, the man Hanratty was looking for at the fair, reported that two more people had approached him about Hanratty, a cafe manager and a newspaper seller, both of whom recalled Hanratty searching for a man named John. Hanratty's father, James Sr., had spoken to the Daily Express reporter Ian Brodie for what would be the Scoop front-page feature. 
Brody also managed to interview Valerie Story, a forgotten figure who was still recovering from her injuries and preparing for life in a wheelchair. James Sr. spoke of his son's two lives and the accident in James's teens that he solidly believed was the turning point in his personality. James's father expressed his anguish and shock over everything, stating, I could never figure out why he became the black sheep because he was so good in so many ways. And it's not sympathy I'm seeking. I'm numb with shock. James Hanratty's defence mounted an appeal before the Court of Criminal Appeal, but the new witnesses would not be called. It has been said that the defence could not risk another loss of face and the possibility of unreliability as they had seen before. The appeal was filed on the following grounds. That the verdict of the jury was unreasonable, or at least could not be supported by the evidence that the judge failed properly or fully to put the defence's case to the jury, and the judge misdirected the jury as to the evidence and or failed adequately or properly to sum up on the issues raised upon the evidence adduced by the prosecution. In regards to the first grounds of appeal, one of the appeal judges stated as follows, There was abundant evidence which, if accepted by the jury, would support the verdict in relation to the second point that the judge did not summarise all the points of the defence. It was noted that with the size of the trial and the number of points of evidence or testimony, there was no way the judge would be able to touch on every single point. It was also said that it was not the judge's duty to do so to that extent. The following was stated, quote, The summing up was clear. It was impartial. It was not only fair but favourable to the prisoner and contained no misdirections of law and no misdirections in fact on any of the important issues in the case. The court is of the opinion that this was a clear case. Anratty's appeal was dismissed on March 13, 1962. Two days later, Anratty's solicitor wrote a letter to the Secretary of State for Home Affairs with new witness statements and other documents in support of a petition for a stay of execution and reprieve. By this time, a petition of reprieve had garnered 90,000 signatures, but it was no use. The reprieve was refused and the penalty upheld. Anratty was told he would be hanged in three weeks. It was later found that Peter Alphon had written to the Daily Express newspaper stating that he believed Hanratty was innocent and supported a reprieve. He also wrote a letter to the Home Secretary stating, I killed Hanratty. Hanratty's friend Charles Dixie France who had, along with his wife and daughter, been a witness for the defence, had been receiving anonymous and distressing calls about Hanratty's innocence. The assumption was that the caller was Peter Alphon. The police were either ignoring Alphon's admissions of guilt because they had a conviction, 
or they were absolutely sure Alphon did not do it. It was Dixie who had revealed to police the conversation he'd had with Hanratty about disposing of stuff under the seat of a bus. It was assumed that Dixie didn't intentionally get Hanratty into trouble with that information and that he may have accidentally told the police that. Dixie had suffered long-term periods of depression and since the trial had been particularly unwell. About the time the reprieve was denied, Dixie rented a room in Acton, West London. He wrote a hateful note to Hanratty, although it never said that he believed Hanratty to be guilty, and a letter to the coroner stating the terrible harm his family had endured because of Hanratty. Dixie also wrote to several family members before he suicided by gassing himself in the flat. He had attempted suicide twice before. As Hanratty awaited his imminent death, he was visited in his cell by two priests. Both priests would later tell Hanratty's father that they believed he was innocent. The priest's visitation is not only to give the last rites to the prisoner, it is also a final chance for a person of the Catholic faith, whom Hanratty firmly was, to confess their sins and be absolved. According to Catholic faith, Quote, with sins absolved, the believer would gain heaven. Without absolution, death could bring the spiritual pain of purgatory or the eternal damnation of hell. Hanratty never confessed to the priests. He continued to declare his innocence. James Hanratty Sr., who stood by his son's claims of innocence, later told the BBC that on his last visit with Hanratty, his son said, quote, Dad, there's only one thing I want you to do, is to clear my name. Tomorrow morning I'll take this like a man. They've pinned this onto me. I want you, Mum, Michael, Richard and Peter never let anybody say a wrong word about me. I want you to clear my name. 200 people gathered outside Bedford Prison on April 4th, 1962, as preparations were made inside for Hanratty's execution. At 8am, he was dead. He would be one of the last people to be executed in Britain. The following day, a wreath would be laid at the gates of the prison by the man who had organised Hanratty's petition for reprieve. Valerie's story stood solidly by her identification of Hanratty as the killer and the man who raped her. After leaving the hospital, she returned to her parents' home in Chippingham, where they would make adjustments to accommodate her wheelchair. She would remain paralysed from the shoulders down, 
and be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Valerie started back at work at the Road Research Lab and began working at a local women's institute where she would later become president. There, she helped other disabled women in the community. A small group of people had formed a committee named the A6 Defence Committee. They attempted to assist Hanratty's defence. It was the committee who had driven the petition for reprieve and was supported by groups calling for the abolishment of the death penalty. It was after Hanratty's execution that the committee began a campaign to have him posthumously exonerated. Hanratty's family were integral. James Sr. and Hanratty's brother being fierce activists. Then, as time went on, the committee grew, with campaigners made up of members of the community, journalists and politicians who believed wholeheartedly in Hanratty's innocence. Former MPs for Valerie Story's constituency joined, Labour politicians Joan Lester and Fenner Brockway and investigative journalist Paul Foote. Most believe Peter Alphon was the real killer and therefore Valerie's testimony should be discredited. Their list of claims against Alphon, as taken from the World Heritage Encyclopedia, are as follows. Alphon resembled the identical pictures more than Hanratty did. When stressed, Alphon lapsed into a Cockney accent. Alphon never produced a convincing alibi. He provided a more credible motive than Hanratty could. He was a poor driver, and Paul Foote obtained a copy of his bank account, showing that Alphon received payments in cash totalling £7,569 between October 1961 and June 1962. Alphon was unable to account for £5,000 of it. At the time, an accounts clerk in London earned approximately £1,300 a year, so that amount was around four years' average wages, yet Alphon had no idea where this came from. A campaign letter written to the Home Office a few months after the trial revealed that although the judge was fair, there was not enough evidence against Hanratty to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There was anger that the reprieve was denied even though, as it was revealed later, the jury was not made aware that Hanratty had been certified as a mental defective. They believe that alone should have been grounds for reconsideration. Shortly after the execution, Peter Alphon came forward. Exhibitionist or not, here was a man who was confessing, but was assumed to be lying. Liar or not, there didn't seem to be any indication that a thorough investigation had been conducted into the validity of Alphonse's claims. In May of 1962, information would be given by Alphonse, which would in part form a dossier written by politician and A6 committee member Fenner Brockway and sent to the Home Secretary, every member of Parliament and the press in July 1963. Alphon had admitted a confession to his barrister, after which he began writing detailed, albeit confusing and erratic, notes on the crime 
and he named a Mr. X, a man he was now claiming initiated the killing. The scribbles were then passed on to the A6 committee via a man who had begun speaking with Alphon privately, Gene Justice. Justice was a businessman who had developed a keen interest in the case. He began a friendship with Alphon for the sole purpose of extracting the truth from him, maybe even a confession. Over the months that followed, Justice would take detailed notes on his conversations with Alphon and recorded their telephone calls. Towards the end of the trial, Alphon found out that Justice had been recording him and it was his anger at this that is said to have caused Alphon to begin making threatening phone calls to Dixie and his own barrister. Written on hotel notepaper in numbered point form, the notes made by Alphon appear to be the beginning of a more detailed confession to come. The first few points read as follows. 1. Obtaining the gun. 2. Frame up in Vienna. Now I knew nuds. Reason for this frame. Altering the register. Alibi with my mother. Planting cases in room 24 when Ryan was out. Asking nuds if Ryan had left. And 3. Slough. Had gun but hoping not to commit murder at that time, but well in the mood for it. The points go on to 10 in a similar fashion, after which he notes more detailed bullet points about the crime itself. 1. Car passed. Lights lit up faces 20 minutes after Gregston. 2. I arrived in car about 9.30. 3. Left approximately 11.30. 4. Drove to lay-by by a roundabout route. 5. I said, shut up, I'm thinking my plan out. 6. Fired about 10 times at her. 7. Drove off about 3 o'clock. 8. Raped Valerie 20 minutes after Gregston's death. 9. Fired shots at Gregston at point-blank range. 10. Said kiss me before raping her when she was in front seat. 11. 38 Enfield revolver. And 12. Past attempt at Cornfield. The problem was there really wasn't anything on this confession that hadn't been revealed either at the trial or in the press. Shortly after this, Alphon visited Hanratty's family, in his words, wanting to compensate them for the death of their son. They threw him out, and in the heat of the argument, Alphon physically assaulted Hanratty's mother, Mary. On November 9th, 1965, Almost three and a half years after James Hanratty was hanged, England suspended the death penalty for murder, making it permanently abolished in 1969. The last person hanged in England was Peter Allen in 1964. Interestingly, the House of Commons continued to hold the vote to restore the death penalty during each subsequent parliament up until 1997. This was because other crimes which, although not acted on, still carried the death penalty such as espionage until 1981 and treason until 1998, the year the act was abolished in its entirety.
Peter Alphon would return to the spotlight in 1966 with an explosive public confession to the media from Paris. A confession of guilt once again. He was saying that someone close to the Gregstons had offered him £5,000 to scare the couple on one of their trysts in hopes of ending Michael and Valerie's affair. This was why, according to him, he had £5,000 in his account. This was the explanation for the other person, a Mr. X, who he had said earlier initiated the killing. He said that another man obtained a gun for him, and that evening he went in search of the couple. Alphon visited the old station inn where Michael and Valerie had a drink, which explained a reported sighting of him there by the pub's landlady, as well as a local man who had met Alphon once before. He came forward to say that evening he had seen Peter Alphon on Marsh Lane, close to the cornfield. During the drive, as Alphon explained, he gave Michael Gregston two chances to escape, but in his words, quote, each time the bloody man kept coming back. According to Alphon, at the time of shooting Gregston, the gun had accidentally gone off and he panicked. It was always believed that the murderer was an inexperienced person at the crime, excitable and of unbalanced mind, a man who could not control his own sexual urges. And when laid out, a description that fits more closely to Alphon than it ever did to Hanratty. Alphon's claims continued. The contingency plan, if the gun was to go off, was that he would travel down to see a man and dispose of the gun which he did. The man he was to go to if this occurred was Charles Dixie France. Alphon claimed Dixie had a grudge against Hanratty for having a relationship with his daughter, and so it was him who planted the gun on the bus and the cartridges in the hotel. If this was true, does that explain how Dixie knew to use the trick Hanratty had told him? To dispose of the gun under the back seat on the upper deck of the bus. The A6 committee continued to point out that the police refused to investigate Alphonse's confessions and credibility in the light of the new evidence. Had Alphonse simply taken the list of facts from the case that he knew to be true from the trial and crafted a story around it, or was his confession real? That year, the BBC programme Panorama presented the case including extracts of the tapes Gene Justice had recorded with Peter Alphon. By that time, 14 people had come forward to support Hanratty's real alibi. Alphon stood by this confession until withdrawing it again in 1971 when he changed it to Hanratty being the person to have been hired to frighten Michael Gregston and Valerie Storey. With the A6 murder being the most high-profile and controversial murder case of the era, the committee grew with high-profile supporters coming on board. 1969 was a particularly poignant time of social unrest and anger towards the establishment. It was a time of protest and a time of distrust. 
1969, Hanratty's parents visited a friend of theirs in Ascot, John Cunningham. John lived nearby to John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and he believed they would be very interested in meeting the Hanratties. John Lennon and Yoko Ono joined the A6 committee, campaigning and helping to fund the cause. They also pledged to make a documentary with Apple Films about the case to back up the campaign. The company did release a documentary called Did Britain Murder Hanratty? which had one public screening in London in 1972, but neither John Lennon or Yoko Ono were listed on the credits. On December 11th, 1969, outside the Kensington Odeon in London, fans were celebrating the premiere of Ringo Starr's movie, The Magic Christian, when they were surprised by John and Yoko carrying a banner that read, Britain murdered Hanratty. A few days later in December, John and Yoko arrived at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park with Hanratty's parents ready to protest his innocence and support James Hanratty Sr. as he made his speech. The couple walked towards Speaker's Corner, guided by minders, covered head to toe in a white sheet. Lennon was quoted as saying at the time, The people who executed Hanratty are the same people who are running guns to South Africa and killing blacks in the street. The couple were also photographed in the back of Lennon's white Rolls Royce covered in the same sheet, a small sign saying silent protest John and Yoko, and a very stern Mary Hanratty sitting alongside. In 1967, following a Panorama television programme on the case, the then Home Secretary had appointed a senior police officer to undertake an inquiry into the alibi evidence. But he reported that the conviction was safe. It was the investigative journalist Paul Foote who put forward an argument in 1971 that Hanratty's execution had been a clear miscarriage of justice and Hanratty's parents would bring forth an action for damages. An appeal was launched, with part of that quoted here. All these years later, by writ, which is dated 23rd November 1970, James Hanratty's father and mother bring this action against Lord Butler for damages. They bring it as the present representatives of James Hanratty. They say that if he had lived, he would have had cause of action for negligence in not looking into the matter properly. They claim damages for loss of expectation of life. The reply was, in part, as follows. On behalf of Lord Butler, the Treasury Solicitor has applied to strike out this action on the ground that it discloses no reasonable cause of action against him. We must, therefore, approach this case on the assumption, and I hasten to say that it is only an assumption, that there was negligence on his part. On that assumption... The question is whether such an action lies against the Home Secretary. When capital punishment for murder existed in this country, once a man has been convicted of murder, sentenced to death, and his appeal has been dismissed, his sentence was inevitably carried out unless the Crown exercised its prerogative of mercy. For these reasons, I agree that the appeal should be dismissed. 
By this time, Peter Alphon had decided to withdraw his previous confession. Twelve years after the execution, the A6 committee came into possession of the original statement made by Valerie Storey in hospital. It had not been revealed to the defence or referred to during the trial or the appeal. Valerie had originally stated that the attacker was in his 30s and then in her second statement changed to him being in his mid-20s. The first fitting Alphon and then the second in line with the changes of eyes was more like Hanratty. Hanratty's parents visited the home secretary, who, according to an interview with Hanratty's youngest brother Richard, said that he could have freed James Hanratty had he not already have been hanged. In 1974, the then home secretary, the Honourable Roy Jenkins, appointed Lewis Hawes a QC to conduct an inquiry, and by the April of the following year, QC Hawser had concluded that the case was, quote, overwhelming. The conviction was once again deemed safe. The years that followed saw the campaign continue by the strong and dedicated few. In 1979, James Hanratty Sr. died. In 1992, to mark the 30th anniversary of Hanratty's execution, a Channel 4 documentary was released. In 1996, there were calls for a posthumous pardon as the then Home Secretary Michael Howard received a report from a senior Metropolitan Police officer concluding his belief that Hanratty was innocent. Throughout all of this, Valerie's story stuck by her witness testimony, sure that Hanratty had been the man to rape her and kill Michael Gregston. Quote, I identified the guilty man. I looked in his eyes and he looked in mine. I knew who he was and he knew that I recognised him. I'd found the guilty person. Before Janet Gregston passed away in 1995, she continued to strongly deny any involvement or any plot to have her husband and his lover frightened or scared off, as Alphon had so publicly claimed. Over the years, however, she had become less convinced of James Hanratty's guilt. She believed it was more likely that Peter Alphon was the one who killed her husband. In 1975, Hanratty's mother Mary was sorting through his things when she came across an old birthday card. As she opened it, a blood donor card listing blood group details belonging to James fell out. She realised that although he was an O blood type, the card had been marked with a number 1 next to the box marked RH negative, which indicated that he was rhesus negative. This made him a more rare form of O blood type. In simple terms, rhesus factor is an inherited protein found on the surface of red blood cells. If your blood has the protein, you are RH positive. If your blood lacks the protein, you are RH negative. 
RH factor can only be found on the surface of red blood cells. If they were able to determine if the biological evidence held in the file did not match his RH status, they may be able to prove Hanrat's innocence. Nineteen ninety seven would see the third official inquiry into the case after nineteen sixty seven and nineteen seventy five. After the review on March 19th, the Home Office referred the case to the newly established Criminal Cases Review Commission, where Badin Skit chaired the investigation. The Commission then conducted its own inquiry into the original investigation. Enough serious flaws in the investigation were found to warrant the reopening of the case, by which time there were huge advancements in forensic testing. Hanratty's family would give over their DNA and wait eagerly to prove the justice system had made a terrible mistake. The document specialists found that pages were missing from two of Hanratty's interviews, the exact ones where he believed they had written the things he said he didn't, as well as omitted things he believed he did say. Throughout the investigation into the documents alone, it's reported they found two to 3,000 undisclosed statements. Detective Superintendent Acott and his deputy Kenneth Oxford were found to have withheld crucial evidence, not just of Hanratty's interviews, but of other witness sightings and statements and a logbook of the Morris Minor. In March 1999, the Criminal Cases Review Commission had found enough evidence to refer the case to the Court of Appeal. There were 17 grounds of appeal, a few of which were 1. The failures by the prosecution to disclose material to the defence. 2. The conduct of the identification parade at which Valerie Storey identified James Hanratty in hospital. 3. The interviews themselves and the note-taking. And 4. Four grounds dealing with directions given during the course of the judge's summing up all but one based on stricter standards introduced since 1962. A portion of the appeal record, which addressed changes in standards and the DNA results, read as follows. In addition to raising factual issues, the appeal has required us to consider issues of law which are of general importance as to the role of this court in relation to fresh evidence relied on by the prosecution as well as the appellant. The appeal also raises the vexed question of how the changes in standards over the years affects appeals against convictions following trials which took place prior to those changes. We will deal with these issues after we have set out the facts. The court noted that the family had adopted a very reasonable and constructive attitude towards the appeal, but there were limits to how far they could cooperate. However, there was one matter which they sought the opinion of the court. It would be in the interests of justice for the remains of James Hanratty to be exhumed to make it clear beyond doubt that there is an established link between James Hanratty and Valerie Storey, who was one of the victims of the attack. The link would be established by comparison with samples which were taken from her underwear, which had been subject to DNA testing. So far, the DNA samples which have been used for comparison with the samples found on Valerie Storey's clothing 
are those provided by Michael Hanratty, the deceased brother and his mother. As a result of that process and the recent advances in the use of DNA techniques, it is possible to contend that the most recent analysis shows that it is 2.5 million times more likely that the appellant was the source of one of the three DNA profiles detected on the underwear of Valerie Storey than anyone else, and that the profile from the underwear matches the profile from a handkerchief which was used in connection with the weapon. Clearly, that analysis already gives strong support for the prosecution that the appellant was the source of the DNA on the underwear. However, the appellant proposes to contend at the hearing of the appeal that there is a real possibility of contamination of the exhibits. This is a case where, in considering the interests of justice, the court has to take into account not only the issues which will be before this court, but also the concerns generally of the public in regard to the Hanratty case. If the appellant has been executed for an offence of which he was not guilty, that is obviously a matter of very great public concern. It would be desirable for James Hanratty to be exhumed in the interests of justice. James Hanratty was exhumed and his DNA taken. By 2002, advanced DNA analysis had enabled testing of the handkerchief for DNA. The handkerchief was what the gun had been wrapped in when it was found. Also, and possibly of higher importance, new testing would be carried out on Valerie's underwear, which seminal fluid had been found on. The first previous round of testing had shown a high likelihood that the seminal fluid had a high chance of belonging to someone related to the living members of the Hanratty family. This time in 2002, comparing to the DNA extracted from the exhumed remains, the DNA on the underwear was found to be a perfect match. Thus, in the court's eyes, proving Hanratty's guilt, at least for the rape, the hope that DNA would solve the mystery once and for all and lead to Hanratty's innocence had ended. As for the recess status of the biological evidence, it can only be assumed that they were unable to determine if the seminal fluid contained RH factor or not without male blood to test and only 50-year-old likely degraded fluids. This answer seems to have never been put to rest. What was in question, however, was the poor handling of all the exhibits. By this time, the evidence had been in and out of storage for 50 years. The defence responded immediately that the exhibits were likely to have been contaminated, showing that Valerie's articles of clothing had routinely been boxed with Hanratty's clothing, as well as the handkerchief that was wrapped around the murder weapon. Mr Nigel Sweeney QC opened the case for the Crown. In his words, in relation to the DNA found on the underwear worn by Valerie, quote, one finds the appellant's DNA in precisely the sort of major profile role which is to be expected if he was the donor of the semen which the murderer left at the scene. 
the DNA profile on the handkerchief are all the appellants and the appellants alone. It was of the forensic examiner's belief that the previous DNA testing that had occurred in the mid-1990s had come to the same conclusion and that no contamination could have occurred from that point on. Mr Michael Mansfield QC, who appeared for Hanratty, argued that the contamination had likely occurred before then, most probably between 1960 and 1962, when the evidence was first bagged and moved around during examination and the trial. It was then stored quite possibly together until 1995. It was his opinion that it is impossible to exclude the possibility of DNA being deposited by contamination. But for now, as far as the appeal was concerned, the DNA findings showed that beyond any doubt, Hanratty had committed the crime after all. Valerie Storey passed away in 2016 at the age of 77. She never married and she never visited the grave of Michael Gregston, moving on with her life as best she could. She became a lonely background figure in the case and had for many been forgotten as the surviving victim of the A6 killer, overshadowed by a fierce campaign to exonerate the man who never faced charges for her rape. She had endured a life paralysed and mostly alone after both her parents died while she was still in her thirties. She said she never felt sorry for herself, saying in 2002 during the appeal, quote, We all get bad days, but you get over it and get on. There is an enormous difference between being alone and being lonely. I am often the first and never the second. Valerie told the press that the shadow of the A6 murder was with every breath she had taken since that day. When Peter Alphon died in 2009, his ever-changing story had once and for all settled in his mind. He was not the A6 killer. So where are we now? The defence's argument of contamination was met with negativity. The forensic scientists hit back, stating that no other suspect's DNA was found on any of the exhibits. Quote, Although the defence argued that the DNA had been deposited as a result of contamination, the Crown said that the reality was that Hanratty's DNA was found because Hanratty was the murderer. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to this week's Patreon producers Alex Chapman and Pat Rolfs, and everyone who supports us on Patreon.
If you want to become a Patreon producer, find out more at patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. For more information, please see our show notes or visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.